You need to get in the game. You can't play this game of leadership or this game of life from the sidelines. You have to get on the field or on the court, whatever it is, you're going to have to take some risks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to IWF Game Changers, a monthly conversation with some of the trailblazing members of the International Women's Forum. I'm Ann Doyle, president of IWF Michigan and your host. The IWF is a global network of more than 7,000 highly accomplished women leaders from 33 nations, policymakers, executives, pioneers, and instigators of change who share a commitment to advancing women's leadership. And each month we talk with one of these trailblazing leaders as they share stories of lessons learned and insights gained from their journeys. So let's talk about life in leadership. Our featured IWF member today is General Linda Singh, a former IWF fellow who is now the Adjutant General of the State of Maryland's Military Forces, which means she's responsible for all daily operations of Maryland's Army and Air National Guard, including the readiness, administration, and training of nearly 7,000 members of the state's military forces. Linda Singh is not only the first African-American and woman to hold this top leadership position, she also has a parallel, very successful business career with Accenture, uh, not to mention wife and mother. So welcome, General. Thank you, Anne. Thanks so much. You know, Linda, you and I were part of an International Women's Day panel together in New York a couple of years back, hosted by Accenture. And, of course, we were talking all about the importance of women supporting other women. So it was an absolute thrill for me to read about you in a recent Washington Post article because you clearly are a woman who walks your leadership talk. Because now, uh, for the first time in the nation, uh, a state National Guard, Maryland's, is led by a command staff of all women. Three are African-American and all are mothers, and you've been the top commander there since 2015. So this new leadership team came together on your watch, right? That's correct, it did. Well, tell us how it happened. Well, first, Anne, I I would say that it was really all about competency. Um, You can't get to these senior levels if you are not competent. And, and I want to make sure people understand that the, the women were not selected because they were women. They were selected because they were the right individuals and leaders for the job. And so when I think about uh, about a year ago, maybe a little bit more than a year ago, when we were doing what we call succession planning, right, we're looking at the future leaders and where we think things are going to line up, that's when I first started seeing that I had the potential um, to have, you know, female leaders up underneath of me. And, you know, when it, when you start seeing that and you're just like, oh, my God, I don't believe that this, and I don't believe that this can happen. <laughs> and then when, you know, the first one is selected and then the second one is selected and the third one, and you're like, wow, wow, this, this really happened because, you know, it, a lot comes into you know, whether or not they're in another position that, sure. um, you know, we can actually move them from, um, whether or not they're even with my organization. So even though they're all my leaders, they could have been off doing other things where I couldn't bring them back. 
Mm-hmm. And so there were a lot of moving pieces as we look at our leadership team and who's going to go where. And, you know, the fact that this, I don't want to say was, you know, happenstance, but it all came together um, all at the same time is pretty amazing. The stars aligned. And, and your point about, of course, it's all about competence, but certainly there's a powerful, um, I don't know, defining moment in terms of just seeing the four top leaders in the the military there being all women, isn't there? There is. And I think it says a lot to the rest of the force. And it's not about we don't value male leaders because we wouldn't be where we are if it weren't for the males that have been supporting us and that have been at the table to have those discussions. And so when I think in every single one of these, um, you know, these, these women's case, um, there was a male sitting at the table, you know, pushing and supporting them getting into the right roles. And so I think that's the, the one thing that I want people to really understand how, you know, we really do have to work together. And a lot of times we may not be the ones at the table. And if we're not the ones at the table, then who is going to be our spokesperson? Who's going to be our sponsor? Mm-hmm. And that to me is very important. Mm-hmm. You know, it was really just over about three years ago, I believe, that women were granted the right to serve in combat posts in the U.S. military. And I know you served in Kosovo and Afghanistan. Uh, you earned a bronze star. Um, why do you believe, which I imagine you do, that it's important um, to serve in the military? I guess that's kind of a follow-up on, on your point about having a voice at the table. Right. I mean, serving in the military is it, it's tough, right? It, it's one of these things where you have to be willing to serve when, when other people are not. And, and I say that because the percentage of individuals that serve in the military is still very small, and it is an all-volunteer force. And so when we think about that, um, I really say to folks that you should serve, whether it's in the military, government, federal government, local government, I think that you, you should serve. But serving in the military, you gain leadership skills that I think uh, are, you know, not matched in any other place, right? You get that leadership training, and it is very different. It, it adds something to your portfolio that I don't think you can get anyplace else. Well, that's fascinating because you have had this parallel career with Accenture, I mean, a very well-respected company that uh, does a lot of work in terms of developing leaders with all of Mm -hmm. their clients. And so I I kind of hear you saying maybe you've developed or learned different leadership skills in both places. Is that right? Yeah. So I, um, and and I just want to make sure everyone understands that I retired from Accenture uh, in 2016, but when I was working the parallel, okay. I found that the two were very complementary to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that the position that I'm in currently today, I could not have um, experienced the things that I have. I would not have been able to do the things that I, I um, have if I was not in the military. It's, it would have been no way possible. And so while the two have been very complimentary for, for me, um, that's not always the case. I think people have challenges trying to figure out how do they make the military skills applicable to their civilian careers. 
Well, let's let's go back. There's so much to talk about, and um, mm-hmm. but I want to um, let's let's go back to your personal journey. And I know yeah. that um, you have written a book, which I'm dying to read, called Moments of Choice: My Path to Leadership. But take us back a little bit to um, the young Linda Singh in terms of how you began this journey of your own life. Well, if I if I go back to when I joined the military, at the time, I was a high school dropout. So I dropped out of high school because I had left home at the age of 16 after being put out of my home because I was, um, I told my parents that I was sexually uh, assaulted by uh, a family member and it it just didn't end well, right? I mean, there's all kinds of things that happen. And so I ended up finding myself homeless at the age of 16, trying to work and trying to take care of myself, trying to figure out where was I going to live. And one day I got the opportunity to speak to a Maryland National Guard recruiter. And this is almost 38 years ago. Um, June 3rd is my 38 mm. year anniversary. And that recruiter, um, you know, talked to me about the benefits. And, you know, the first time that I seen him, I didn't talk to him. When I came back, I was on break at work. And, and when I came back, um, I stopped to talk to him. And it was a kind of a recruiting table set up in the mall. And I, I will tell you, um, that conversation that day was a change in my life. And when I say it was, you know, I didn't know it then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when I look back at it now, if I wouldn't have stopped and had that conversation, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have joined the National Guard, I wouldn't be in the military, and I wouldn't be where I am today. Mm-hmm. But these conversations are, are two-way, because you had to take the initiative, but the person who was staffing that table or that, that day also had to not discourage you. Yeah. What do you remember yeah. about that person? Well, I remember that he was very persistent, and he was <laughs> telling me all the great and wonderful things about the military. So let's say that he was a good recruiter. <laughs> and But this was um, still 38 years ago. I mean, women going 30, into the National Guard, it was still pretty new. Well, and that's what I, I think, you know, I so I went back and looked at my enlistment contract to say who signed because you know I'm, I, I was a general officer about four, before I, right when I took this job uh-huh. I went back and I said I want to know who the recruiter was because I'm wondering if they're still around right and, to, to find and, him um, <laughs> I was a little shocked because I knew the recruiter I, I had known him pretty much all his career and he had retired he's, he's a civilian working down at National Guard Bureau, and and I told my folks, I said, I need the Sergeant Major's uh, contact information because (laughs) I want to call him. And, you know, from what I understand during his days, he was a very good recruiter. Mm -hmm. And meaning he he was only a recruiter for a very short time, and he put in a lot of folks. And so what that says to me is that he did not care whether right. it was male or female, right. he was doing his job at recruiting the numbers he needed for the organization. And when I think about it, that's the way he's been pretty much all his career. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it, now that I know you know, who it is, it doesn't surprise me. Did he remember that, I mean, obviously you're well known in the state now as the top general, the top in command there. Did he remember that he was the one who brought you in? 
He did not because my name was different. <gasps> um, so I've gotten married. Yes. So my name had changed a couple of times. So he did not realize I was that same person. And when I called to tell him thank you and that, you know, he was the recruiter who recruited me into the Maryland Guard. And, you know, oh, by the way, wow. I want to thank you for probably saving my life. Wow. Um, he got really silent. And I would have to say that he was emotionally moved. Yeah. Um, but I wanted, I, I wanted to make sure that he knew <laughs> because yes. I didn't think that he did. I don't, because if I didn't put two and two together, he surely did. Yes, as your name was different. And I think that's an incredible point, you know, that whole idea about thinking back to who were the people that were key in a crossroads, maybe, in our lives, and to go yeah. back and to thank them. Yeah. And I'm thankful that I actually had my enlistment contract from back then so that I could go back and look at it. Right. And now I've, I've actually put together a recruiting presentation that I use to talk to my recruiters. Mm-hmm. I use to talk to recruiters of other organizations to get them to see that they're an entry point into an organization but they could, in fact, be helping to make decisions that change people's lives because they don't really know the situation right. that someone's in. And so they need to think about their job as not just a recruiter, but they need to think about their job as being a catalyst for change for someone. Right. Well, um, I also know from reading the Washington Post article uh, about you and the fact that um, the state of Maryland has made history here as the first Mm -hmm. state with all women commanders, um, it wasn't all easy. I mean, that first person certainly encouraged you. But share with us um, some of the challenges that you had uh, along the way, including, uh, I read, that some of the male leaders in the military laughed at your ambitions to become an officer. Yes, they did. Mm-hmm. So there was, it's funny because I don't remember this person's name, but there was one individual that he clearly told me that I did not have the patience mm-hmm. and what it takes to become an officer. When I was saying that I, you know, I wanted to go to officer candidate school. Um, and so, you know, that one sticks out in my mind. Um, when I first entered into the military and I was at my, uh, one of my, my first schools, um, I was told by an NCO that he didn't want women, you know, serving in his military. And I'm like, oh, that's, I mean, you know, it just, you know, when you have those types of things that, that come up and, and mm-hmm. granted, I haven't had a lot of them, mm-hmm. but when they do come up, it really makes you take a step back. And I think now what I've learned is I would much rather deal with the people who are willing to kind of tell you to your face <laughs> versus the ones that are kind of lurking, you know, mm-hmm. in the shadows and mm-hmm. they're not willing to tell you, mm-hmm. but they're doing everything they can to not support you. Right. And that to me is a bigger danger. That's what we see a lot more because it's harder to identify. Right. Well, um, Oh, boy. This opens up a whole uh, (laughs) lines of community, you know, conversation here, because uh, the whole topic of sexism, uh, but also racism, and and you've had to deal with both, clearly. Um, And and what you just said about it's easier to deal with people who are going to come right out and say, I have these prejudices versus those who we, we all clearly have them. 
what what is your perspective right now? I mean, let's take let let's separate these two, okay? Let's just tackle sexism for a minute, in terms of um, differences that you have seen in terms of male and female leadership styles, perhaps, and advice you give to other women uh, who are still encountering all kinds of um, sexist discrimination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you know. So I've I've actually. Um, looked at a lot of research in this area. And so what we find is that um, the decision-making skills for men and women are, there's, there's no difference, even though we use different parts of our brains to be able to do it, there's really no, no surface level difference. But what I, I will tell you is that, you know, the women leaders that I've had uh, and the ones that I've worked with, um, they work hard. And I'm not saying that the male counterparts don't, it's that they feel like they have to work so much harder. They um, are, are doing, you know, double time and triple time because they are still trying to ensure that they're being considered as, as equals. Mm-hmm. And, and so you almost have to say, well, you know, why is it that way? I mean, why is it that, you know, the males can just do their job and be recognized, but the females can do their job and not necessarily be recognized? And so... I've really tried to ensure that um, just myself as a leader, I'm seeing, um, you know, all of my folks from the same playing field. I'm looking at their capabilities, mm-hmm. and I'm not letting gender impact the way I see them as, as leaders. Um, but I am being sensitive to the fact that if they are parents, right, because I have, you know, uh, individuals who are mothers, I have individuals who are fathers, I have individuals who are single parents. And so you do have to be kind of cognizant of that to understand are there things that could be different for them because I've kind of gone through all of those um, kind of paths mm-hmm. um, and ha- I've had all those experiences. And so it's easier for me to then have that conversation with them about how do you not find balance, but how do you set those expectations Mm -hmm. so that you can still maintain your family life and then do what you need to do as a leader? And those are the things that I think, I think women are more willing to have the conversation on some of those hard things where men are a little bit uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Well, when you start talking about gender, uh, you can't avoid the topic of um, sexual harassment and assault, Uh, still a big issue in the military. You have been um, very open about Mm -hmm. what you suffered as a young woman and um, your your personal experiences. So uh, why is this so difficult to solve in the military where there is a chain of command that's maybe clearer than in other organizations and corporations? Right. So first off, um, you know, some of the behavior that was allowed in the past and some of the things that we tolerated, and I, and I would have to say that in some cases, you know, we, i.e. the overall, you know, pool of women need to not tolerate as much as we have, right? We can't tolerate the dirty jokes and all of that stuff because that, it does more harm than it does good, right? And so sometimes we'll just brush it off. And I've mm-hmm. done it myself where, mm-hmm. you know, you're in an environment and it's all males and, and you just say, well, boys will be boys. And 
So you're saying we can't do that, huh? You know, no no sense of humor. You have no sense of humor, Linda. Well, no, you can have a sense of humor. It's just that you have to know when things cross the line. And so, and my team will tell you is that, you know, we can joke and, and we can kid around. And I've actually had commands where almost my whole unit was mailed. And I could joke and kid, but they also knew when they could not cross the line. And I think that's the key thing. And you, you have to start having this level of respect for one another. And so I think, in, you know, in the military, we're still seeing it because what, what is acceptable in society is not, you know, it's not acceptable in the military. We have a much tighter um, requirement on what we will allow and what we won't just because of our jobs and the nature of what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the former president of IWF International, Barbara Barrett, uh, has just mm-hmm. been nominated by the president to serve as secretary of the Air Force. Yeah. And uh, she has an incredible background. I'm sure she'll do an outstanding job. But um, we're, we're both hoping that she can tackle this issue. And I know that you have um, said that it, a, an important piece of this is what women have to do including what we accept, but also maybe speaking up more? Right, right. Yeah, and I think it's even bigger than that, right? Because we see um, same-sex harassment and sexual assault as well. So I'm not, Mm -hmm. so we want to make sure that we have to look at the whole gamut. And I think it's really about having the right conversations about what's acceptable and what's not. And, And so here's what I would say is, She's not going to be able to tackle it and solve it at her level because it happens way too far down below her level for her to be able to say, well, she can solve this. Mm -hmm. We have to get the people uh, within the organizations, you know, having that level of conversation to say, here's what's acceptable and here's what's not. PowerPoint slides doesn't necessarily always get at this. It's about the conversation and developing a level of respect for one another and knowing that, you know, we should be able to work side by side and I should not have to worry about whether or not, you know, if, if we're working late, is this individual going to turn this into something where we've got to take action now, right? Because they've, they've come on to me or, or, you know, they decided that, you know, they wanted to have this level of power over me. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think, you know, we really need to start having conversations at a much different level and very early on. And, and it shouldn't be left to a, a once a year or a twice a year presentation. It should be a normal part of business. You know, this whole Me Too uh, movement that um, we've experienced uh, in, in terms of the last couple of years, uh, it, it made me think, I have, uh, I'm one of seven children and I have three brothers, and when we had daily headlines about this, it occurred to me, um, I wondered why none of my brothers ever said to me, hey, Ann, have you ever had any of these experiences? Mm-hmm. And it made me think that maybe it was because I never talked about them. And, you know, maybe part of it, and and I've certainly had things happen, Mm -hmm. and maybe part of it is our own willingness to talk to men about this, too, because I don't think men have any sense of of how women move through the world with these issues all around us. Would you agree with that? 
I, I would agree, and I think it's a very uncomfortable conversation. And so I've recently had males have a conversation with me about how my story has inspired them, but they're not yet ready to talk about what's even happened to them. And so it, I think it's a really tough conversation for people to have. And and you have to be willing, you know, when, when you're ready to open up, with something like that. You have to be willing to face all the demons that come with it. And I think that's tough. That's tough. It was tough for me. Mm-hmm. And even now, you know, when I, I'm dealing with others that are going through it, it makes me relive the hurt. Mm-hmm. And, and I have to be able to now, you know, now I can separate myself from it and to say, you know, I'm in control and I don't need to to feel that way, but I still relive it every time I see the pain that someone else has to go through because, um, you know, someone has taken and stripped away their power. Yeah. But I I think I hear you saying it's worth doing it. It is. It is. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about racism, because you um, certainly have endured that, uh, plenty of it, I'm sure. And... um, do you feel, I mean, there's a lot of feeling in this country that maybe there's this big that we're slipping in so many ways in terms of lack of respect on many, many levels, and racism is definitely a piece of that. And sometimes uh, I always hope that it's darkest just before the dawn. Uh, do you sense that uh, the U.S. culture is on the verge of a new willingness to maybe talk about the deeply ingrained racism in our culture? I don't think we're there yet. I think, I think that we need to. Mm-hmm. But um, what I'm what I'm seeing is that, um, and and you know you see it in the news. And I don't know if the news is just making it more, um, you know, if it's just putting it out there a little bit more. And maybe we're only seeing you know touches of it. But that's not the sense that I'm getting, and that's not um, what I'm kind of seeing happen around even myself. And, and so I guess, you know, when I, when I think about racism, I feel like we're slipping backward. Mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, we are retreading ground that we already thought we had put to bed. Right. Um, and so I'm not real sure that we're even in a position to have the conversation where are we going to let this happen? Because I think we're still in denial. Um, but when you look at history, right, history should tell us that. Um, when you're when you're faced with things like this, um, you can't let off of the gas. Like you are going to have to go back. We're going to have to retread some ground in order to be able to gain even further momentum. And so, um, when I think about racism, and, and what I will tell you is, when I was growing up, and it's it's not like that now for me, but when I was growing up. Um, it was really challenging for me because I'm very light-skinned. And so, therefore, I didn't fit uh, with mm. the blacks. Mm. You know, they would make fun of me at times. Mm-hmm. And I didn't fit with the whites because mm-hmm. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't black enough and I wasn't white enough. And wow. that was a very real thing. And so, um, now I'm so glad that, you know, people see it differently but I'm not going to say that we are out of the woods because racism still exists. I just think the way that we're starting to see it kind of materialize now is, is a little different than what any of us would have experienced. 
So those of us who care about uh, reversing yeah. this slippage and, and moving yeah. forward, what are you doing? What would you hope that others can do instead of just well, passively observing what's going on? Right. I mean, we've got we've to have the conversation. Mm-hmm. Because it's clearly, you know, this starts popping up when people are in fear of losing something. So yeah. we need to understand what is it that we need to have the conversation about, what's going on, and we have to listen to one another. And I, and I think that um, we need to spend a little bit more time doing that and maybe a little less time in our cell phones. Mm-hmm. And that's leadership. I mean, is courageous yes. conversations is certainly part yes. of leadership, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I want to make sure that we ask you, because this is the IWF Game Changers conversation, <laughs> uh, about your experience as an IWF fellow. Um, looking back on it, what, what did being part of that program mean to you? Oh, so first off, I still um, talk to people about that program and the 26 amazing women that were <laughs> part of my group from all of the different countries. And, and, I, and, you know, all of us still pretty much keep in touch, even to this day. And I consider them to be lifelong friends, right? We have something in common. We shared something, uh, shared an experience, a learning experience that I think was just so amazing. And, um, and, and people, you know, when they ask me about it, and it's something that I keep on my resume because I'm so proud mm-hmm. of having been an IWF fellow and, and, you know, it was an amazing experience, and it really helped me to start thinking about, you know, where, um, you know, where can I make other impacts in the world when I looked at what a lot of these other women were doing and, you know, what they were doing within their countries, I was just in awe. I mean, I really was. I was uh, very much in awe. Well, that's, I think that's one of the incredible things about being part of the International Women's Forum is that it's this opportunity to meet fantastic women leaders yeah. from all over the world and from many, many yeah. different professions we'd never have a chance to meet otherwise. That's correct. And the, the other thing that I learned, and here's something else that sticks in my mind, is you know the big uh, conference that they have each year. Right is talking about world problems, right? It's talking about how do we solve for world problems. And that to me, I'm not real sure that I see that at any other women's forum um, where they're really tackling those big things. Right. We're tackling global issues through a female lens. Yeah. Which is a fantastic thing. And, you know, speaking about the global conferences, I can't miss an opportunity as the president of the Michigan chapter of the <laughs> IWF to mention that the global conference will be in Detroit in Motown in October yeah. 2020. So I hope that's on your calendar. <laughs> That is correct, it is. Well, let's um, just wrap up by asking you any last uh, advice, wisdom uh, you'd like to share with our um, listeners uh, who aspire to leadership roles and, um, you know, continuing to help us move forward, uh, whatever their fields. You know, the, the thing that I want people to do is, um, I know that this is kind of a, an, an old saying, but you know, you need to get in the game. You can't play this game of leadership or this game of life from the sidelines. 
you have to get on the field or on the court, whatever it is, you're going to have to take some risks. And, um, and, and that's what I think that, you know, most people, they don't necessarily want to step into leadership roles because they feel like, well, what if I'm not going to be successful? And what if I fail? Um, and, you know, what I tell my folks is that, you know, you, you need to figure out um, what are you willing to risk to be able to, you know, make an impact and, and to have things a little differently. And if you're, if you're willing to accept some level of risk, then you need to step forth into this leadership path. And um, I would like to see more people doing that. I really would. I love it. Thank you so much, uh, General oh, Linda yeah. Singh, uh, Thank you. <laughs> Adjutant General of the Maryland National Guard, uh, former Accenture retired executive, mother, wife, and commander of the Maryland National Guard, which made history recently as the first state with a command staff of all women. And thanks for joining us, everyone, for this episode of IWF Game Changers, a conversation with some of the trailblazing members of the International Women's Forum. I'm Ann Doyle, president of IWF Michigan and your host, and we hope you'll join us again as we talk about life in leadership.